And let's uh, just uh, pray before I begin, shall we? Lord God, it's, um, it's hard, really, to come from a sunny afternoon uh, into church and to start talking about something as horrific as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, that's what we're going to do this evening, and I just pray as we do that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will come and will touch every single one of us and will bring us closer to you as we realize what it meant for Jesus to die on that cross. Amen. So on uh, Wednesday morning, early, in the early morning prayer meeting that we've been having, um, I made some joke about the upcoming uh, royal wedding and about how I might be walking around town saying, bar humbug with a friend of mine. But on Thursday, I had a slightly different uh, thought. I had a change of heart, really. And I thought, well, actually, royal weddings don't come around very often. And this might be our only chance to actually see one. So I said to the family, I said, why don't we go down to London? on the Monday, and, or whenever, when is it? Saturday? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Friday, thank you. <laughs> we would have missed it anyway. <laughs> anyway, why don't we go down to London and go and see the Royal Wedding? Why don't we have a good day out and uh, see if we can see them as they go past in their carriage? I suggested it at tea time, and Alex immediately said, no way. And Miriam said, yes, let's do that. And Lucas didn't really know what we were talking about, and my Spanish wife was surprisingly unenthusiastic. And uh, so we shall probably never get to see a royal wedding in our family, ever. Uh, Even though, on Friday, the number one uh, news item on the Daily Telegraph website, uh, I don't know if you saw this, was uh, the lookalike jelly bean. Wesley Hosey, 25, had a pleasant surprise as he and his girlfriend tucked into a jar of yellow and red jelly beans made by the jelly bean factory. The trainee accountant said the moment he opened the pot, he was struck by the red pattern on its surface, illustrating Kate Middleton's strong facial features, long hair and smile. Mr. Hosey and girlfriend Jessica White, 24, from Taunton and Somerset, kept the mango-flavoured bean and now plan to sell their Kate lookalike jelly bean on eBay for about 500 quid. (laughs) So uh, rush home, look at eBay, and you might get a bargain. Or not. So even though that was the number one news story on the website... I suspect there's uh, a few people around who will join the Huddleston family in their apathy towards the royal wedding. Nevertheless, in, on Friday, in slightly less than a week's time, the fairy tale princess wedding dream of many girls will come true for at least one. And the hearts of the world, and certainly this nation, will be warmed at least temporarily by good old British pomp and ceremony. Perhaps the problem is, though, Perhaps the problem is, as we look forward to this wedding, or not as the case may be, is that we have the memory of another royal wedding in our minds, the royal wedding that took place in 1981. 750 million people watched uh, Prince Charles marry Lady Diana Spencer on television. Another prince, another beautiful, blushing bride. What could be more perfect? Except that we know the ending to that one, don't we? We know that Charles was already in this long-running relationship. We know that Princess Diana's relationship with the royal family deteriorated very rapidly. She developed bulimia and was obviously very unhappy. The couple separated in 1993. Diana spilled the beans, not the jelly beans, but other beans, in the Panorama program in 1995, and they were divorced a year later. And the year after that, Diana was killed in that car crash in 1997. She was killed in the hands 
of a drunken driver, crushed and mangled, the wreckage of a car in a concrete tunnel. Everything about that day sticks in the mind, doesn't it? The, just the, I don't know, the, the sort of darkness and the sort of urban sprawl of that tunnel. The French police, the paparazzi, the white Fiat Uno. You probably remember it as well as I do. I was in McDonald's in Cheltenham when I first heard that Princess Diana had died. What an end. What an end. And on top of that, Charles got to spend his life, his life with Camilla. So it's a known ending. It's a known ending, a terrible, horrific ending to something that had begun so beautiful. But that's nothing compared to what we have tonight in John's Gospel. So here's the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 16. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the word made flesh. God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, coming down to live here among us, to bring grace and truth, to bring light, to bring salvation to the whole world. What a beginning, what a beautiful saviour, full of grace and truth. But as with Charles and Diana, we know the ending, don't we? It's a known ending. And here we have it in John chapter 19 and verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Just three words used here to describe the most terrible of deaths. They crucified him. How had the most beautiful beginnings ended like this in in tragedy? They crucified him. The Encyclopedia Britannica says this about crucifixion. It says, In the penal systems of the ancient world, crucifixion was an important method of capital punishment, particularly among the Persians, Seleucic, Jews, uh, Carthaginians, and Romans. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped, dragged the crossbeam to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. There he was stripped of his clothing and bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbar beam or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about 9 to 12 feet above the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the shaft gave some support to the body. Evidence for a similar ledge for the the feet is rare. Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and crime. Death, apparently caused by exhaustion or heart failure, could be hastened by battering the legs with an iron club. But the medical reasons for death are not fully understood. It was thought to be a suitable punishment, chiefly for political or religious agitators, pirates, slaves, or those who had no civil rights. No civil rights. Well, it just looks like it, doesn't it? Verse 16, Pilate handed Jesus over. The soldiers took charge of Jesus, but no civil rights. Jesus was the creator of the world. 
He was God's word that had spoken over the waters. He was God's word that made flesh. Do you get the joke here in verse 16? This is hilarious. No civil rights. Pilots deciding his future. Soldiers taking charge of Jesus. And yet they were dealing here with the creator of the world. Everybody thought they were in control, didn't they? Pilate was the Roman provincial governor, the closest things they had to a king around here, the most powerful man in Judea. He handed Jesus over. It was his soldiers who had him flogged and paraded him through the streets before hanging him, and hanging him on that tree. Oh yes, Pilate was in control. But there was something that made Pilate feel uneasy, wasn't there? His wife had had that dream. She told him, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. His own conscience told him that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And then there's the way that the Jews had manipulated him, how they'd pulled that trick with the crowd. I mean, the whole thing was grotesque, wasn't it? And yet to Pilate, it was also a, a mere trifle. If it pleased the Jews, after all, Pilate, he was in control, wasn't he? There's only one man who Pilate feared, and that was the Emperor Tiberius Caesar. We know from history that the Emperor had already received two high-level complaints against Pilate. And a few years later, in AD 36, Pilate was sacked from his post in Judea after the way his troops had attacked some Samaritans during a religious ceremony, unnecessarily antagonizing the Samaritans. Perhaps that was why Pilate vacillated Just imagine if the emperor had found out that Pilate had released somebody who was going around claiming to be the king of the Jews. In fact, Pilate wasn't in control. The Jews, on the other hand, they thought they'd pulled it off. Initially, they'd been scared of the crowds. They were too scared to arrest Jesus in public in the temple courts. So they waited until one of his own number betrayed him. They waited until the dead of night when Jesus was found in a secluded place. They took a unit of the temple guards with them and they even persuaded Pilate to send a a Roman patrol with them just in case. And yes, there was a small scuffle as they arrested Jesus, but then the captive himself, he saw the futility in it all and he warned his followers to put away their swords and to be peaceful. The Jews were in control now, weren't they? They processed him quickly through their own court, the Sanhedrin. They took him to Pilate, and after a tricky start, they managed to convince Pilate that he was an enemy to the Roman Empire, that he was an enemy to Caesar, claiming to be the king. Pilate had given in. The Jews were in control. But then, you see, Pilate writes this sign. As we heard from the encyclopedia, it's not that uncommon. It was, un- it was usual in those times. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in Aramaic, the language of the, the Jewish people, in Latin, the official language of the Roman state, and in Greek, the common language of the people. So up to now, only a limited number of people had squeezed onto that stone pavement, or the uh, Gabbatha, outside the Praetorium, which was Pilate's palace, to find out what was happening, to hear the charges against Jesus. And the day before the Passover feast was a great day to bury bad news. The Jews were in control. But now, you see, the crowds would gather for the entertainment of the executions. Thousands of people would flow out of the city and go and see those people being crucified. They would see Jesus being crucified. They would read the notice above his head. 
they would see that he was crucified, proclaiming to be the king of the Jews. And suddenly the situation was out of the control of the Jews. Would the ordinary people riot? Would they rise up against their leaders in defense of this man? They had hailed as the son of David and the king of Israel only a few days before. No, the Jews weren't in control. So what is going on here? Well, history thinks that it was Jesus. Jesus was killed due to some kind of unholy alliance between these two characters, the Jews on one side and the weak pilots on the other side. But us believers, we understand that Jesus went to the cross not because of an unholy alliance, but because of a holy alliance between God the Father and God the Son. And it was born out of God's love for you and for me. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Simply because God loved us enough to give his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus, for his part, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. So who is in control? Well, first, in one side, God the Father is in control. Even Jesus says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, God the Father wants Jesus to die on that cross so that Jesus can take the punishment from your sins and from mine, so that he can become our sin, or sin in our place, so that he can win the victory over death and defeat the guardian of death, who is Satan himself, Hebrews 2, and reconcile sworn enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles, to each other and to God, Ephesians 2. He wants Jesus to become the scapegoat for the wrong we've done, the once and for all perfect sacrifice, so that God's sense of justice can be met, evil is judged, condemned and paid for, while we, the offenders, we go free. See, God wants Jesus to go to the cross because that is where Jesus pays for our sin and God loves us so much that he sent his only son to do that for us. The writer Kingsley Amos famously once said, one of the great benefits of organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins, which must be a wonderful thing. I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There's nobody there to forgive them. Kingsley, you didn't look up. You were like the soldiers crouched at the bottom of the cross, playing dice for the clothes of Jesus, as though his clothes were the only legacy that this man was leaving. They didn't look up. If they'd only taken their eyes away from the spoil for one moment, if they'd not been so consumed about making a quick buck, about profiting from the moment, as as indeed was the custom at those times, they may have seen Jesus. And if they'd looked, they would have seen their own sin there, born on the shoulders of that dying man. And they might even then have realized, as their centurion was later to admit, as the skies darkened and the curtain of the temple split into two, surely this man was the son of God. But Kingsley, Amos, and the soldiers didn't look up. They didn't see what some of us here have seen for ourselves, that Jesus died on our behalf so that we can go free Our sins can be forgiven. The burden of guilt and shame that sometimes we live with can be removed and destroyed forever. And the joy of that feeling, the joy of knowing that our guilt and our shame has been taken away from us. But they didn't look up. 
And I just urge you here tonight, if you haven't yet realised what Jesus can do for you, then look up tonight. Gaze upon Jesus hanging there on the cross and realise that God sent him to die for you. There is no need for you to carry that burden upon your back. There is no need for you to carry your sins around with you. They can be taken away and forgiven. But some people don't like all this talk about God sending Jesus to die. I mean, if God the Father simply ordered Jesus to die, then where's the justice in that? God simply got the wrong man, didn't he? He punished an unwilling victim. As one uh, Christian leader infamously put it, it's a bit like cosmic child abuse. And although he was talking about an incorrect portrayal of that, the phrase has stuck in some Christians' minds, and they become afraid to talk about Jesus becoming a substitute on the cross become an embarrassment to them, and they prefer just to talk about the love of God and the example of Jesus. But no, because as we said, this was a holy alliance between God the Father and God the Son. You cannot separate the two. There's not even a cigarette paper between the two on this. They both willed that Jesus would die on the cross. So Jesus is also in control. They might well challenge me and say, well, did Jesus want to go to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? when he wept tears as dense as blood and said, if there's any other way, then let it be so. Or you might ask, did Jesus want to get to the point where he would be on the cross and he would cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, no. Jesus knew what it meant. He knew that he would not just face the mental shame of being stripped naked and tortured in front of thousands of people, He knew that he wouldn't just face the physical agony of being nailed to that cross. He knew that the pain of the sin of the whole world would be placed on his shoulders. And God, unable to bear the sight of sin in his son, would withdraw his presence from him. And the two would be separated from each other for the first time, for the first time since the world before the world began. And Jesus knew that that is what he had to face for us. It's not like he hadn't been warned, is it? I mean, his disciples were constantly telling him not to take this road. They constantly tried to prevent him from going to Jerusalem. What did Jesus say to Peter, though? He said, get behind behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. But he still took him along with him. He let him come to the secret places, to the upper room, to the garden in the valley. Jesus allowed the crowds to hail him as he came riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the king of Israel, they cried. And at that point, they were writing out the arrest warrant for Jesus because of the things they were saying. No, Jesus was in control. He knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, this was the greatest holy alliance between God the Father and God the Son that the world has ever known and will ever see. He came to complete the work he had been sent to do. So what is your sin to you? Is it an important part of your life? Perhaps you're like millions of people who say, well, I'm I'm not a bad person. I'm quite a decent bloke, and nobody's perfect. 
Woody Allen once tried to justify his relationship with the, uh, the teenage adopted daughter of his wife, Mia Farrow, by saying, well, a heart wants what the heart wants. It's not important. Dos, uh, Dostoevsky, I can't say the word, Dostoevsky wrote the famous novel, Crime and Punishment, where a murderer confesses his crime, recognizes that he's guilty not just before human law, but also uh, before God's law as well. And he comes to recognize that crime must lead to a punishment. Woody Allen, again, made a film called Crimes and Misdemeanors, where a doctor hires a killer to murder his mistress, and then decides he shouldn't feel too guilty about it, because after all, she was just a random collection of atoms, and there's no such thing as justice anyway, it's just a misdemeanor. Are your sins just misdemeanors? Nothing much to worry about. Perhaps you'd like to get rid of certain habits or weaknesses, but you'd live with them for so long now, you can't really believe they're too serious. Besides, if you weren't doing that thing, then you might be doing something else over here. Did God the Father send his son to die? Did Jesus go willingly to Golgotha to face the agony of Gethsemane and the terror of separation from God on the cross because of our misdemeanors and domesticated sins? No, he went to that cross and he faced that utter terror because he knew that our sin is a despicable, unmentionable offense to God's holiness. It is fundamental rebellion against the creator of this universe. You see, we deserve the worst punishment of all. We deserve to be separated from everything that is good, including God himself forever, for all eternity. Because we, like Adam in a different garden, have turned our backs on God and tried to hide our nakedness and shame from him. And that, of course, is the truth here, isn't it? God's judgment isn't a case of God losing his temper, just snapping into anger. No, crime leads to a punishment. Justice, if there is to be justice, demands it. Yesterday I went for a walk near Southwold, and I don't know if you, you've seen the, the, sort of the gorse that they have in the fields there, the yellow, bright yellow gorse. Well, in the field we were walking in, they were, they were cutting that gorse down and burning it in the fire. But then the, the lady who was talking to us realized that to get the roots out of the ground, she needed to get a heavy excavated in to actually go and drag those roots out of the ground so that the gorse shouldn't just grow back again. And that's what our sin is like. Evil must be dealt with, root and branch, by God. That is how seriously God takes our sin. It's not just about cutting it off and burning it briefly, allowing it to grow back later. He sent his son to die on our behalf, to be our excavator, if you like. Jesus went willingly to finish the work he had been sent to do. Finally, in, in verse 28, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And they passed him up some wine vinegar soaked on the sponge tied to the end of a hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. He needed a drink. He needed water. He had lost so much blood. His tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth, as, as Psalm 22 tells us that it would have been. But refreshed after taking the drink, he is able to call out in what Mark says was a loud cry, it is finished. It's just one word in the Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. Now, apparently, archaeologists have dug up from ancient marketplaces old bills and business contracts with that word on, tetelestai, it is finished. So when a builder finishes putting the last brick in place, he would write to his patron and say, tetelestai, 
It's a word that a general would shout when the last piece of enemy resistance is routed and turns to run away. Tetelestite has finished. It's a word that you might use when you finally get that letter from the building society to say the mortgage has paid off. Tetelestai, it has finished. You see, and this is the point, it's not a cry of defeat, I'm finished. That's me done in, I'm beat. No, it is tetelestai, a cry of victory. The work that God has given me to do is finished. The scriptures are fulfilled. I have done my job. I have paid for your sins. Once there was a rich man, a rich farmer, who was a Christian, and he was feeling very desperate about a close friend of his who wasn't a Christian and just couldn't understand this whole thing about Jesus having paid the price for his sin. This guy didn't want Jesus to do it. He wanted to show and win his own favour with God. He wanted to show how good he was to God. Now, the farmer's friend was a carpenter. So one day, the farmer commissioned him to make a fine wooden gate for the farm. The carpenter worked on it for weeks, wanted to do a really good job for his friends. And finally, one day, he phoned the farmer, and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Well, I'm not sure he actually said Tetelestai, but he used words to that effect. And so the farmer says, well, bring us up to the farm tomorrow, and I'll help you put it up. So the carpenter arrived the next day at the farm, and the farmer was there waiting for him with a big axe in his hand. And the carpenter said, well, let's get on and hang this gate. But the farmer said, no, wait, wait just a minute, I've just got to finish something. With that, that, with that, he takes the axe, and he began to slash at the gate, hacking bits off it, cutting deep scars into this lovingly crafted woodwork. And the carpenter shouts, stop, what are you doing? It was finished, it was perfect as it was, it was complete. And at that point, the farmer turns to his friend and tells him, the work of Jesus on the cross was finished. It was perfect as it was. It was complete. There's nothing more that could be done to make our salvation more perfect and more complete. Because God and Jesus has done it on our behalf. And that's what we all need to know. If we've been Christians for a long time, we need to remind ourselves of that fact. If you're not a Christian yet, then you need to know that fact. It's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. It's the difference between evangelical Christianity, good news Christianity, and the type of churchy, liberal Christianity that tries to prove its own worth through good works and religious attendance. The work has been done. The job is complete. We can offer nothing more to God, all we have to offer is our own sin. And God takes that sin upon himself, pays the price, and sets us free. Tetelestai, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, the glory of those words, the glory of those words, tetelestai, it is finished. Lord, so often we come to you and we try to bring our own goodness, we try to bring the things that we've done, we try to bargain with you, saying, well, I did that bad, but I did this as well, which was good. And yet, Lord, we know that none of that is worth anything. The only thing that is worth repeating to you is tetelestai, The work of Jesus is finished upon the cross. I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. 
may I repent and turn from those sins as I say sorry to you and as I put my trust and faith in you for the rest of my life, making you Lord and King over my life.